Please stand for the reading of God's word from Exodus 19, 1 through 25, and 20, 18 through 21. Because this is a longer text, the words will be projected on the screen behind me. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidrim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, for he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. 
When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. It's great to see uh, some of our out-of-town visitors. We are continuing, if you are just joining us from out-of-town or from being gone for a little while, we are actually concluding our series in the book of Exodus, at least what we'll call season one of Exodus, up through chapter 19 and part of 20 here, that we've been calling Out of Darkness and into light, looking at the various ways that God has delivered his people out of the soul-crushing oppression, genocide, slavery that was their life in Egypt, and into not just an absence of life with God, but a very specific life in the light of God's existence, life in community with him. And we've started to pivot from out of that uh, deliverance theme to life with God as a theme, even life in the wilderness, Last week, we looked at how God provides for his community, particularly doing that through one another. We saw how it was too much for Moses to do alone the work that God had called him to and that we are actually called not to do our work that God gives us alone, but with one another by the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. And today, we close our series by looking at what that and all these other moments that we've been getting through over these many weeks have been leading up to. What it's all been building towards is not just the things that the people need. It's not just delivering people out of danger. It's getting to this one moment where they meet God. That's actually what God tells Moses. He was supposed to tell Pharaoh was, let my people go that they might what? That they might come out and meet with me. This has all been building toward this point. This is the climactic moment of deliverance, of exodus, is to come and meet with God. What's that like? What is it like when you actually meet the God who has been delivering you, who has been pursuing you, who has been calling you out of darkness? We're going to look at what that meant for them and for us through them this morning to come into contact with this God. There's so much more that we could get here to and even part of this early section of chapter 9 I covered way back in the spring in our series about being a people who are blessed, broken, given, chosen. So you could go back to that and find more there if you want to get into early parts of chapter 19. But we're going to focus primarily on God's presence, on who he is and what he's like. And we're going to do that by looking at first what it's like when this God comes down. Second, how do we relate to this God? And third, how does he relate to us? So what's it like when God comes down? How do we relate to that God? And then how does he relate to us? Well, before we do that, I invite you to bow your heads and pray one more time with me. Let's invite God to fill up our hearts. God, we come before you, uh, maybe in many ways feeling full from time with family, maybe from good food, from, from community, from experiences that have been good, maybe feeling empty, 
Maybe feeling the absence of those things now, the end of those things approaching, or the ways that we just haven't had the kind of time that we've wanted to have, that we feel an emptiness, we feel a missing seat at our table in our lives. But you know what we need, and you have called us here to meet with us no less than you called your people way back then. So I pray that in your, in your intangible reality, that you would come now in the way that I cannot do myself, in the way that any of us cannot produce, that you would come by your presence and by your power in the magnitude of the Holy Spirit and that you might meet us in such an unimaginable way that we leave here changed having been in your presence in some small way, that we might know that you are the God of the universe, that you are the great I am who was and who is and who is to come and that in meeting with you we would be changed. So would you fill us up this morning? Would you be all the greatness that we need, that tops the fullness we already feel, that fills the emptiness that we feel gnawing at us as well? Be that God this morning, by your grace. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have those open. If, they're, uh, if you don't have one this morning, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or always feel free to listen along. We'll go back through the text a bit together this morning, starting first with looking at what it's like when this God comes down. We've seen what he looks like when he's rescuing. We've seen what it looks like when you are attacking and oppressing his people, how he stands up for you when you need someone to stand up for you. We've seen what it looks like for him to provide miraculously for you when you think there's no way out, when you don't understand even what you're asking for and yet he is gracious still. But what does it look like when you're not just asking him for something, when he's not just fighting for you, but when it's just you and him face to face, when there's no agenda except to be together? What does that look like? The scene that answers that question this morning where God comes down to meet with his people is this, if we really step into it, otherworldly, cinematic, big Hollywood blockbuster, mega budget kind of movie scene. Just look at the text. There is a lot of buildup to this. There's first an announcement in verses 9 through 15 that this is coming, that the people ought to prepare because God is going to come and meet with them. Then there's waiting. There's three days of waiting, being prepared in verses 10 and 11 to meet with what they've been told is coming. Then even then there's not the immediacy of it, but there is the announcement that the time is actually coming. The introduction to God's presence, not his presence itself, is this massive storm, thunder and lightning that seems like it would block out the sky and be a mega storm that has a dense cloud over the mountain. And then on top of that, there is something that, that's hard to quantify, this trumpet blast, this massive sound. You could imagine a, a Hans Zimmer score just blasting through Dolby Atmos sound at you in a theater, loud enough to make you shake on your own. Finally, there's the arrival. God descends on the mountain in a massive fire that covers the whole mountain with a thick, dense smoke, making the mountain itself shake. All the while, the sound of the trumpet blast that's blaring first is getting louder and louder and louder and louder. And God's speaking with Moses out of that as the people are walking towards that. This is a scene of intimidating sensory overload. 
This is not a warm, fuzzy kind of experience. This is a trembling, I'm not sure I want to get too close kind of experience. It would make you and I shake too. It would overwhelm you. Not just because God's presence is so massive and in so many ways he's just unapproachable, but because the ways in which he is unapproachable are breaking down their categories. It's actually putting them in tension with the way that they understood reality to work at that point. He doesn't fit into standard operating procedures for them in the ways he's doing this. We're going to look at it. Because he breaks their fundamental understanding of their world when he comes down in this way. You see, the people would have been more familiar with Egyptian society's conception of God at that time. And that was a pagan pluralistic society with many gods who had responsibilities and powers over differing separate things. Even the greater gods had more powers, but it wasn't all encompassing. And yet God crosses over into multiple categories all at once in front of them on top of the categories he's already shown them in delivering them out of Egypt and providing for them in the wilderness. Now he's doing something they haven't even seen yet. He's crossing multiple boundaries all at once, things they would have understood to be separate. He's showing up not simply as a water god, though he had showed control over both the Nile and the Red Sea, right? He had turned the Nile to blood. He had parted the Red Sea. This is very clearly, if you're thinking, this is a water god. This is someone who has power over the waters, and yet he descends in fire, sort of the very opposite of water. Okay, so maybe he's not just a water God, but he's also not simply a sky or a storm God because he speaks with them from the mountain. He comes down to speak with them. He doesn't speak from the clouds. He doesn't speak from the heavens. God does that in other parts of Scripture, but here he comes down to the land, to the ground to speak with them. He's not simply a fire or storm God either, despite coming in this way, because he shakes the mountain itself. It seems he has control and power over the land, over the earth, not just the sky and the clouds, not just over fire. And he's not simply then either a God of light or fire like the sun. He's not a sun God because his storm would have blocked out the light of the sun. He would have obscured his own presence and power from them with this storm that he brought with the clouds and with the smoke. So when God comes down in this way, he is crossing over all these different categories where you would expect him to fit in a neat specific box that goes with what you understand the world to look like. And yet when God comes down, he doesn't fit into our categories. When you are reintroduced to God, the things you expect to see as powerful but isolated, maybe God works this way, maybe I pray a certain way and then God will answer, maybe I live a certain kind of life and then God has power over my morality, maybe I do a certain amount of effort and then God blesses my effort and he has effort and power over there. The things that I expect when I'm reintroduced to God, God says, I am not that small or simple. I'm something else, something beyond, something that you don't know what to do with, something that's beyond what you expect. In coming down like this, God is calling them out of the darkness of expecting him to fit into the boxes of the categories that they're comfortable with. 
of the ways that they understand to God, for, for God to be like this. That's how I expect God to be. He says, no, I'm not that small. They expect God to be like this. He says, no, I'm not that simple. They expect God to be one or the other. And he says, I am all those things at one time. He's reintroducing them to the light of who he truly is. And that's something beyond what they or you or I are able to imagine. We like to put God in a comfortable box. We're going to talk about this more and how about and about how we relate to God, but they would be expecting God to show up in a certain way, and God doesn't do that with us. He does not fit into the small categories that we have. He is drawing them to know Him as He is, not just how they expect Him to be. And that would shake their world. It will shake your world if you meet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who comes down in so many ways through Scripture and most pointedly through Jesus. If you meet him, it will shake and it will redefine your world. He does not come into your life and into your world to fit inside some predisposed box that you have for him. God doesn't just fit over here where he takes care of my health and he stays there. God doesn't just fit into, he takes care of my relationships and my family, and he stays there. But he doesn't talk to me about how I use my body or my money or my time. That is not the God of Israel. If that's the God that you want, that is not this God. If that's the God that you're rejecting, that is not this God. He does not come down to fit neatly into some small corner of our lives and stay there. In what ways do you need to be reintroduced to this God, not the God that you want to put in the corner. Where might you be saying, God is either this or that, but he's certainly not both. He's either completely relatable and I should be able to understand everything he does. You should be able to explain that to me, God. Or he's completely unknowable and you just can't make sense of him. I can't have an opinion about what he might ultimately do. Or put it differently, where are you saying that, that God is all loving and must therefore accept everyone no matter what, or he's just cruel and he judges everyone and he doesn't care? You're saying he can't be love and he can't be judgment. Where are you saying that he either does what I hope and he cares about me, or he doesn't do what I hope and he must not care, or he's not strong enough? It's not possible for him to care and yet choose something different that might also be for your good. Where are you putting him in a box that he does not fit in? Where are you rejecting him because he doesn't fit in that box? And he would agree with you that he doesn't fit in that box either. Where are you trying to make him relate to you on your terms rather than letting God relate to you on his terms? And that brings us to our second point of how do we relate to this otherworldly God who doesn't fit in our categories? If this is what he is like, if it's sensory overload, how do we relate to someone like that? God actually gives instructions. He doesn't make you guess. That's what Scripture is about. Scripture is about God not making you guess about how to relate to him. This is pages and pages telling you who he is, how you might know him, so that you don't have to guess. And he gives exact details for them to follow. The details will change over time of what it means to relate to God, but the principles in those details that he gives here stay the same. 
They and we relate to God by these same two things, by being consecrated and by listening. Those are the two ways that God gives us to relate to him. To talk about the first, consecration, in verses 10 and 11 and 14 and 15, Moses is to consecrate the people. It's not exactly clear what that meant at that time. That becomes much more clear as you move through Scripture. But it is clear he does at least a few things. He has them wash their clothes, and he has them refrain from marital intimacy. But whatever the exact details were that would have been going on maybe outside of those things, consecrating in Scripture is if you boil it down, it's a setting something apart for a special purpose. It's a changing that thing from what's normal or setting it apart from what's ordinary to engage in or be part of, to be, to be set aside for something special and specific. There are certain ways that we even do this today. Some of you have graduated not that long ago or you've, you've matriculated from other things and you've worn a cap and gown. That is a special way to mark out something different that's happening. We do this at the holidays. We decorate. You're showing that this time, this day, this season is different from the other seasons. You mark it out as standing apart from ordinary time and it's special. Whatever ways they did that, we still do that. And in, in these things, they're showing us that this is not an ordinary time. And God is showing them that this is not to be an any ordinary day. To meet with him requires something different from normal life. That's what consecrating to be in God's presence is about. To meet with him requires something different than just normal life. You can't just come as you are. You can't just do what you normally do that won't do. And of course, God does invite us to come as we are, but not remain as we came in. There is a changing that has to come because God is not something that just fits into your world. That is not how it works. Rather, this God is something that fundamentally requires you to adjust to his world just by his nature, not because he's being capricious, he's not being arrogant. It just requires that you must change to be in his presence because of what he is like. You need to be consecrated, you need to be changed, you need to be set apart, different, because he is different. You have to match what he is like. That's the first. The second instruction, relatedly, to stay back from the mountain in no uncertain terms, that what verses 12 and 13 convey, under no terms are you to approach any old way you like. That is a requirement for them to listen. Exactly like he calls them to do in verse 5, he says, if you will listen to my words, you will be my people. This is an early test of that. Will you listen to my words? Will you be my people? To enter into his presence, you have to listen to him. You can't just approach whenever you like. You have to, as the text shows, be invited to come in. You have to treat him like a king and let him invite you in. In the ancient world, it was actually dangerous to your life to come into a king's presence unannounced and uninvited. If you go to the book of Esther, there are several chapters about that, about the fear of coming in before the king unannounced and uninvited. It was an affront to their status and title, to suggest that you were somehow now equivalent that they would have to answer to you in your presence, rather you answering to them and their presence. 
much more so with God, a much greater king. It's dangerous to come into his presence in the wrong way, not just because it would dismiss his status and assume a rival authority for yourself, but because he is this category-breaking power that requires that we carefully come before him. Now, this is something that we don't really have a sense for in our largely post hierarchical society. There aren't lords and ladies anymore. There aren't barons and baronesses. There are just people. That doesn't happen in our societies. We don't have a sense of approaching a different level, but we still understand this in nature. You can't help but understand it in nature. If you run into a lion in a field by yourself with nothing on you except a Nutrigrain bar, you recognize that something has to change and it is not the lion that you have to change to fit its power and its status and its authority. It doesn't matter if you watched a YouTube video about people petting lions and you believe that you also should be able to naturally be a lion tamer and pet a lion if you feel like it. The lion has a different idea. Please do not try this at home. It's not your preferences, it's the lion's nature that matters. You see that? The same thing is true of God. It's not your preferences, it's the king's nature that matters for how you approach him. When you run into him, something has to change. You have to listen, you have to adjust to fit his nature. Those people that learned to pet lions learned to adjust to their nature. They learned to listen, to pay attention to instructions that would let them not be killed. If you don't do that, it won't go well for you. Likewise with God. He is wholly different from us. So to relate to his power and live, we have to one, adjust to him, and two, listen to him. Follow his lead. God reveals more and more about what consecration and listening look like over time, but these are the ways that we are to relate to him. Scripture is just unpacking these things in a more and more nuanced way, that the way you relate to God is by being set apart by changing and by listening. And the reality is that's just hard. It was hard for them. It's hard for us. Because either they and we are prone to relate to God's nature in the wrong way, to not recognize that he is, in fact, completely different and that we can't just do whatever we like. We see that in how God, God feels. Moses doesn't agree, but God feels, I need to warn these people again and again and again. I have to warn them three times, actually, verses 12, 21, and 24, to not come near the mountain unless I invite you. Do not do that. God's concerned that they will miss how to relate to his nature, do what they feel they want to do in the moment, and that they will get sideways with his nature real quick. They will mistake the lion for a kitten and he is not a kitten. Or they and we will struggle to relate to God because we're afraid of his nature. You might feel like, I'm not afraid of God, I'm not afraid of his nature, but there are ways that that's true of us. It just looks different than it looked for them. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 20 say the people tremble with fear. They stay at a distance. They say, Moses, please talk to us, but don't make him talk to us. We, we don't want to have that connection. They were okay. They were more than okay. They were glad and rejoicing to have the power of God on display. 
to have God's judgment come down. They were okay with that. They were not okay with having a relationship with that. That they didn't know what to do with. We, flip side, we are very okay with having relationship with God. We expect God to have relationship with us. We expect God to be warm and inviting. We don't know what to do with the power and judgment of God. That we would like to stay away from. Relationship, yes. Power and judgment, no. For them, power and judgment, yes. Relationship, no. It doesn't matter. Culture will change. Society will change. Your preferences will change. There will always be something that you are uncomfortable with about God's nature and be a little afraid of what that thing will do in your life. So we stay back or we stumble in and we cut against the grain. It is hard for us, it was hard for them to be consecrated and to listen. But thankfully, getting to our last point here, a relationship with God, meeting Him, does not depend on theirs or our readiness, ability, or even their fears. Meeting God depends on Him. Because remember, these were already things that he was giving them. He wasn't making them guess. He was telling them, this is how you relate to me. And God is not the kind of God that says, here are the instructions, figure it out for yourself. God is not Ikea. Ikea is a cruel master. Here are the instructions, good luck if you do it. God shows up to your house and does it for you. He's the one to make it happen, to get into our point here of how God relates to you. He's the one who does these things. We're going to talk more about how he does it in a second, but I want us to first notice that God is going to make that happen without doing something that we would expect. He's going to do that without either flattening his nature or dismissing their nature, just walking past it saying nothing actually needs to change. He is still this unapproachable, shocking God despite the consecration and the listening. That doesn't change how they're going to relate. He is still the God who comes down in fire and thunder. And yet they are still the people who are prone, God has to warn them three times, to dismiss his ways and to disbelieve, to be afraid. Yet God's plan is to connect with them despite their differing natures and actually remaining in their differing natures. He doesn't turn them into God and he doesn't stop becoming, he doesn't stop being God and become somehow just purely human. They stay human albeit consecrated and listening, he stays God. The natures remain the same. We don't expect that. We expect that something would have to shift in order for these two to fit together. But that's how God is going to do it. That's how he's going to relate to them. And the fact that, that he doesn't change their nature or his to relate to them, he just changes their posture towards him. They're set apart. They're listening. Suggests that God and humanity, different as we are, are actually capable of relating despite our differences. They're actually even designed to relate through our differences. The problem is not our natures. The problem is that something gets in the way. The problem is not that you are human and he is God. The problem is not that you are in this body and you must escape to something spiritual. This is not a mysticism. The problem is not being a human embodied soul. The problem is something happens to your human embodied soul that gets in the way. The text suggests what gets in the way is those two things that God was pushing against. Humanity's not listening and their fear. 
They're wanting to stay at a distance. Their tendency to do whatever they and we feel works best for us, which is what Scripture calls idolatry or sin. Chasing what you feel will fulfill you, whether or not that lines up to ultimate realities. Trying to have the divine, the eternal, fit into a box. That's what an idol is. It is an expression of control. Or... The problem is that we fear. We withdraw from God, which is a natural consequence of trying to put God in a box. When God steps out of the box, we pull away because we wanted God to stay in the box. And these are the same things that have been humanity's problem from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when our connection with God as human and He as divine was established. We didn't listen. We wanted eternal We wanted the divine, we wanted it on our terms, in a box. And we were afraid that we wouldn't have it. And we were afraid when it showed up. So if at creation it wasn't a problem for humanity and God to relate, the problem is not our nature, the problem is not that you are this flesh creature and you need to be just spiritual, the problem is the idolatry. It's the breaking of the connection. It's the sin, as Scripture would call it. Sin breaks how we were made to relate to God. We don't change and listen. And yet God, for all that, miraculously, is still committed to connecting with you. He shows it here by addressing those breaks in the connection by giving Moses as a mediator someone they are more comfortable with. He's given them someone like Moses to speak to them because they are more comfortable with Moses. He gives them what Scripture would call a mediator. He brings a message through that mediator of how to reconnect, to be consecrated and listen. You're invited to draw near. Here is how you do that. He doesn't make them guess. But this message and mediator only go so far. They don't reconnect the entire people back to that Garden of Eden kind of one-to-one relationship that humanity has, according to Scripture. Because only Moses and a handful of others can even go onto the mountain. Everyone else either has to stay far off, this consecrating doesn't seem enough to bring them all the way in, or they don't want to be there. They stay far off. His difference is intimidating to them. The presence is not something that they desire. The pattern is right for connecting. You don't change the nature, you consecrate it and you guide it. Change their posture towards the divine, that's the way you do it. But this version appears to be something less than complete. Because all the people are not yet somehow, this 19 verse 5, a kingdom of priests. There seem to be priests among the people that can come, but not yet are they a fully consecrated people where all the people could come to the mountain. The text leaves us for all the deliverance of Egypt, for all the anticipation of this meeting with God, still a little bit dissatisfied. Still wanting something a little bit more than is there. Still looking for a little bit more light than we found so far. For a brighter version of a human relationship with God. A a more complete message. A mediator that really could consecrate the people. 
And the Old Testament time and again expresses that dissatisfaction, that yearning and that hunger, that longing for a greater mediator meant to bring the estranged humanity back into relationship with God the King. And that person in the Old Testament is called the Messiah. And the New Testament identifies that person by the signs given in the Old Testament as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus comes as this greater, not just mediator, but also message who would bring the entire people onto the mountain himself into that one-to-one relationship with God by being exactly like us, by being truly human, having a hand like you have. Someone that we could be comfortable with because we could see ourselves in him but yet who could be different from us and go beyond what Moses could do because he is not able to just tell us to wash our clothes. That's moralism. That's legalism. If you hear the Bible telling you just wash your clothes and do it yourself, that is not what it is ultimately pointing to, which is the hope of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ washing your heart for you. That he would play the servant. That he would get down and serve and wash the dirty brokenness off of us himself. Not tell you to do it, not tell you to go away, but be the one who cleans you up and brings you in by washing away the sin that made us disregard him or hide from him by being exactly like us but without that sin that would keep us away. Dying for sin at the cross as though he was us. As though he was someone that doesn't listen, that doesn't care, that would just get sideways with God and not be thoughtful about it. So that in dying on our behalf, he would put our not listening, fearful, disregarding self to death in him so that there would be no more separation. So that we could step foot onto the mountain. So that you would be consecrated, not by your doing, but by his consecrating you. Made completely clean. He dies in our idolatry. We rise in his righteousness. That is the great exchange, the great consecration of Christianity and scripture. That in Christ, you become all that you never were, but were so meant to be. And he becomes what he was never meant to be, but gladly takes on that he might have you back in relationship with him in the fullness of his deity and immensity. That's the greater message. That's the greater mediator, that Jesus is finally how God would fully relate to you. He would remain divine, you would remain human, and yet there would be a bridge that would link the two together again. Drawing near without erasing your humanity or reducing his divinity, drawing so close as to bring his thunder and fire nature into a human life in Jesus Christ and closer still by his Holy Spirit to bring that divinity, that immensity into your life by the Holy Spirit. So to land the plane a little bit and make this maybe more practical and tangible, I want to encourage us in closing to do two things in the coming week, to reintroduce and to adjust. To reintroduce yourself 
to God? Where do you need to be reintroduced to this God? Not the God who fits in my one or the other categories, but the God who says, those are too small for me. I don't fit in there. Listen to me. Let me tell you who I am. How frustrated would you be if someone said, I know who you are. You're exactly like this. You'd be like, hold up a minute. No, I am not. Just look at my wish list for Christmas. I am so much more than that, right? We do the same thing with God. We say, God, this is the tiny little box you fit in. And in Scripture, he says, no, I do not. Where do you need to be reintroduced to a God who steps outside of the categories that you would put him in? Where do you need to be reintroduced to the fact that he is not just here to crush you, but that he has come to reconnect with you? His immensity is not meant to push you out, but to have you connect with it. That Jesus is willing and able to bring people like you and me back in from trying to do it our own way. That shame does not get to have the final word over you. That even that he can wipe away. In the ways that we have walked away from God, he says, I am still interested in relating with you. Be reintroduced to him by entering into this passage again this week. Just If you don't read anything else this week, come back to Exodus 19 and 20 and sit in this story. Imagine yourself in it. Realize that God comes to consecrate, to mediate, to draw you in. And that Jesus Christ has come down in a much greater way to bring you onto the mountain with God. Meet with him if you don't know him. Be reintroduced to this God. Let him speak. Let him answer. What would he say to you? And secondly, adjust. We meet with him, not just by recognizing his immensity, but by adjusting to it, by following his lead, by being consecrated. Meeting him calls for life change. So where is God calling you to adjust? to follow his lead instead of yours, to do things a different way, to have a different mindset, to use your words a different way, to use your money a different way, to use your body a different way, to pause, to refrain, to take special care. Even as a Christian, this is for people who are already his. All of us, even if we already belong to him, need to adjust. Where are you doing things your own way? And not considering whether it fits with his ways. Even baptizing it, putting his name on it and saying this is his way. Israel is great at that. We as Christians are great at that. Where do we need to come back to reform to scripture and say this is God's way? Where are you taking your cues from him? And that asking and that finding out of where you need to adjust is not about being lost. It is not God saying, ah, finally you recognize how much I'm frustrated with you. It's an opportunity for what is lost to be found, for what is so precious to him that he would call it a treasured possession, that if you have walked away, he would be delighted to have that treasured possession back. Let him show you the way. Let him adjust you because he is only too glad to do that. You mean so much to him. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a little time at CTK for you to 
talk to God about the things that He's put on your heart this morning, to maybe thank Him that He brings us in, that He has made a way, that He does consecrate us in Jesus. Maybe confess the ways that you'd, you don't want to adjust. You don't want to listen. Let Him speak into that or ask Him to bring you closer. Say, I just can't do this. I don't even know where to start. Would you step in? Let's pray. as we hear the voices of our little ones preparing to come back in, would you remind us that you hear our voices in that way? No matter how old we are, you are happy to hear from us, that you see us as belonging to you just by grace. Would you enter in with us now? Amen.